0: Many of us are familiar with the television show CSI, a crime drama series that follows the investigations of forensic scientists. Here in State College, we are lucky to have our own crime scene investigator, Robert Shaler, professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and the director of Penn State's forensic program. Dr. Shaler received his master's and then doctoral degree from Penn State in 1968. He was then asked to return in 2005 to head the new forensics department. He worked in forensics in Pittsburgh and in Washington, D.C., and then went to New York City to work in the office of the chief medical examiner from 1978 to 1986. After working at the nation's first forensic DNA laboratory, Life Codes, he returned to the medical examiner's office in 1990 to become the director of what will become the country's largest forensic biology department, while also serving as an adjunct professor at NYU's School of Medicine. After the September 11th attacks, he led the investigation where he designed and implemented a premier DNA testing strategy to identify the majority of victims. In 2005, he published the book, Who They Were, which tells the story of his historic investigation. Today, we will be traveling into the world of crime scene investigation with Dr. Shaler while we learn how to use and weigh the evidence. Please join me in welcoming Robert Shaler.
1: Thank you very much. It's uh, really an honor and a privilege to be here. I have to confess, I'm just nervous as the devil when I go in front of a classroom to teach, I know exactly what I'm going to say, and I don't have to worry too much about students asking questions, because students never ask questions. But here, I think I'm fair game. What I'd like to do is sort of talk about crime scene investigation in terms, not in a didactic sense, but sort of like as an ongoing exercise. And I've brought two crime scene schematics with me today and we're going to go through those as if you guys are the crime scene team. But first what I'd like you to do, I'd like you all to stand up and I want you to turn to the person on your right or left and I want you to shake hands with them. And now what I want you to do, if if you're familiar with the person next to you, give them a big hug. Like... Okay. Now you can sit down. What you have just done is you are living, a living demonstration of the cardinal foundation of forensic science, which is known as the LeCardes Exchange Principle. You touched hands, you transferred DNA, you hugged, you transferred fibers, and if you coughed while you were doing that, maybe some saliva. (laughs) Would you stand up please? What's your name? Rowan, would you go over and put your finger on this table here? Okay, sit down. Who did you shake hands with? And your name? Aaron. So Rowan and Aaron have exchanged information, if you will. This is a crime scene. We have a body lying here. You committed the crime. You killed this person because this person cheated from you on an exam, right? The police come, they dust, they see the fingerprint, they lift the fingerprint, and some scrupulous person or unscrupulous person in a crime laboratory finds DNA there. Whose DNA do you think they find? Both of them. Aaron is now implicated in that crime. That's what we call secondary transfer. Does it happen often? No, not very often, but it is possible. So anytime crime scene investigator is at the scene, they need to not just look at this and say, oh I've got a dead body, I've got to take a picture of it. They've got to think about the implications of what they're doing. Critical thinking is the hallmark of a good crime scene investigator. So let's take a look at the crime scenes that we have there. Edmund Locard is the guy I was talking about. He's credited with saying every contact leaves a trace. He never really said that, and it's in quotations. Everybody quotes it. Uh, His students actually implied that, but he never really said it. So let's take a look at the first crime scene. you, You guys are the investigators. Team one, team two, right? We have what we call macro scene observations. We have a car in a driveway with a bullet hole in the windshield. The front seat and steering wheel are bloody. The front door to the house is open. So we we have the car here, we have a blood trail which leads to the house, and the next schematic you have is the house. And so we have this blood trail coming in here and the front door is open. The entrance door to the house is bloody. The trail pattern leads from the car to the house. And how do you think you could determine, let's say team one, how did you determine that the blood trail leads from the the car to the house? How do you think you would do it? That's possible, how else? It's just droplets of blood, no footprint. How would you do that? Direction, which direction? Yes, that's right. The blood is going to hit the pavement and in the direction you're moving, it's going to create little spines moving in the direction that the person is moving. Okay, So, we can. the first thing that the investigator is going to see is that the blood trail is leading into the house and not away from the house. Okay, So we've learned something haven't we? We know, we know something about this scene now that we didn't know before. So now we're going to go into the house and in the house we have a body which is here. X marks the spot. Usually that's buried treasure. This is the dead body. We have schematically blood on the floor and this blood here is mist-like. It's like somebody took a, a bottle, a spray bottle and was spraying with it so it's mist-like. We have a ceramic tile floor here which we have to be careful with. We have an oak and mahogany parquet floor here and then we have furniture and whatnot around the place. We also notice that there's a bullet hole in this window. So you're the crime scene investigator after you've been debriefed by the first officer who was the first person at the scene you are now in charge of what they call processing this scene we have the body lying on the floor we have droplets on the floor we have tiny spatters on the floor we have a bullet hole in the window and we have blood on the doorknob to the entryway so what are you thinking what's the first thing that's coming to your mind is it a suicide alright so let's go through this one step at a time step one guy's outside of the house, shoots a bullet where? From the window? This, this is the ooze here, huh? All right, so that's one hypothesis. Another? Anybody have another idea? Yes, back here. What's your name? Gabe, what's up? All right, one step at a time, step one. We're outside the house now, right? All right, so let's, let's go outside the house here. In the car or where? Where did that happen? But we have no evidence of that. You're too young to be drinking in bars. So, some other places, there's an argument. Yeah. This is all hypothetical now, right? I mean, we have, we have absolutely no physical evidence to support what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, continue. Someone From when he had this fight before? Yeah. Okay. He got out of his car. gets out of his car, yeah. he walks, yeah. and he's, dri- he's dripping blood. Yeah. Okay. The Touches the doorknob, yeah. gets blood in the doorknob. Okay. Goes inside the house. Goes inside the house. How'd the guy? Is this the same guy he had the argument with? Yeah. So the guy with the, who had the argument followed him, and he's standing outside the window. He has, a gun. he has a gun. Okay. Hypothesis number two. Yes. Good question. Why isn't there blood on the ceramic tile? Well, okay. So now we're trying to figure out whether or not we have a bullet going in or going out, right? That's another question. What's the first? Yes, Aaron. Okay. The question is, can you tell where this person was standing? when they shot through the window. First thing we need to know is did the bullet go in or out. Can you tell that? Yes, you can tell that by looking at the bullet hole. The Bullet goes in and when it comes out it pulls a lot of glass with it and creates a cone on the, dire- on the, on the side opposite the force. So we can tell the direction of the bullet. Can we tell where the person was standing? Well, if we can do the bullet trajectory and we could find a place where that bullet hit then we could get a very accurate trajectory. We don't have anything here indicating what we call it a bullet impact marker, a defect. So we don't know the direction that bullet came. We also don't know if it's inside this body because we haven't done the autopsy yet. All of these theories, yes, that's another question. Does the blood on, in the car, does the blood on the walkway match the blood that's in here, and does any of that match this person who died? These are all investigative questions. But what we forgot to do is process the scene. So all we've done so far is come up with theories of what might have happened, which is a good thing to do, but you still have to do the process. What's the first thing you do? It's been sealed. There's, there's, there's uh, crime scene tape all around the place. Nobody gets in, this, which is important, because if, if you don't have crime scene tape there, then the reporters can come in. And so can the, so can the f- photojournalists. And uh, as one of our students knows, uh, who was in the back of the room back there, she had this problem when, when we had our crime scene outside in the, uh, the Nittany Lion Shrine. Sketch and photograph the scene, exactly. Your job as a crime scene investigator is to preserve this scene. You have to archive it. You have to preserve it so that if somebody wants to know what happened at this crime ten years from now, it has to be preserved in, in exactly the way you found it. Now some people might call this a virginal scene. It's not. No crime scene is virginal. First of all, somebody found the body, which might have changed something. There was a first officer there who might have changed something. There might have been EMT people who were in there to see whether or not the person was alive or dead. They changed something. So the scene is not virginal. But it needs to be protected and preserved in exactly the way it was. In th- the investigators found it. Exactly right. Who, what's your name? Brandon. Brandon? Good job. You're on your way. All right. So... We need to do the sketching and we need to do the photography. Let's look at photography first. What kind of pictures are you going to be taking first off? What do you need to take? Yes. All right. We're going to be taking pictures of the blood, but that's not the first thing we take. Yes. Well, we can certainly, we have to start someplace, don't we? So we're going to start with the outside of the scene. And your name? Ross Ross has decided we're going to start on the outside, which is perfectly fine. Maybe it's going to rain. If it's going to rain, then we have to take care of all of the evidence outside the house first. So where is the evidence going to be in the outside? The car? What's on the car that might be important? Fingerprints on the car, so we need to get those dusted or however we're going to develop them. But first we've got to take our photographs. We take what we call overview shots or establishing shots first. It's the very, very first thing you do is get a perspective of what this scene is about. The second step is to take what we call mid-range photographs. So if we're going to be, we need, we have a bullet hole in the car, so we have a car here with a bullet hole in it, so we need to get pictures or photographs of that bullet hole. We need to get photographs of the inside of the car where there are blood stains on the steering wheel and in the car. We need to document this trail of blood. We also have a window outside, don't we, that has a bullet hole in it. And what what, what might be out here that might be of interest forensically? Footprints. Okay, so how are we going to get those? We're going to photograph them. How do you photograph footprints? Any thoughts? Yes. Well, that's not, that's second. We, we photograph them first. The re- why do you photograph things first? Before you touch it, why do you do that? Exactly. There are other words for it, but yeah, you can mess it up. So the very first thing you do with any evidence is you take a picture of it. You have to preserve it. That's your job, is to preserve this crime scene. And you do it. Take a picture as it is, and then you put scales down, and you take pictures with scales. And all your photographs have to be vertical and they have to be done on a tripod because now you're doing a close-up photograph. And students don't like tripods because they're kind of finicky. So you take your photographs and now we're going to go to casting this. Yeah, we don't use plaster anymore. Plaster is one of these things that's kind of uh, iffy, it uh, doesn't work that well all the time. I have had bad experience with plaster. We use dental stone, the same stuff you use to take molds of your mouth. And so you can make this up, you can do it in any kind of weather. If it's colder, it takes longer, if it's warmer, it goes faster. But you get a cast of this. And now you've preserved that footprint, hopefully for posterity. What else comes with that? When you lift it, what comes with it? Who said dirt? Dirt, exactly, dirt. Important stuff, forensic evidence. Whoever stepped in that has dirt on the shoes, don't they? Right. Okay, so the dirt that you pull up with that, with that cast has that same dirt on it. So that has to be preserved at the crime lab. So the crime laboratory, if they get the shoe, can not only match the pattern, but they can match the dirt. All right, what else are we going to do? We're taking photos. What other kind of photos are we going to be taking? We're outside still. Anything else you'll have to do? Starts to rain. What are you going to do now? You want to collect the blood sample. How much blood do you need? Now, let's, let's, let's take a look at this blood trail again. that goes from the driver's side door into the house. How many samples are you going to collect? It's starting to rain now. Yeah. One? How many say one? How many say two? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. How many say nine? The answer is two. You collect one here. First of all, you're making a decision, because you're a bloodstain expert, that this trail of blood is from one person walking in this direction. We've already decided which direction the person's walking, haven't we? So now we're gonna collect this one and we're gonna collect this one. Because we know they're from the same incident, we just wanna make sure that we have the beginning and the end. I one time had a district attorney in New York ask me to do DNA analysis on 52 blood drops that the police department had collected on a trail. The guy had a trail, he was bleeding, he left an apartment where he killed somebody and walked down two flights of stairs to his own apartment, and it was a trail of blood leading directly to his apartment. So there was no trouble finding the guy, but when you get to court, you have to prove these things. And so the idea would be, can we just take some representative samples, maybe one on each floor or something like that, but all 52 drops were collected, and I had to argue with this guy for a couple of hours anyway about the need to do DNA analysis on every one of these samples, because I told him he'd probably take several weeks to get the results back. But if we did two of those samples, the beginning and the end, and they were both the same, and we knew that the trail was from the same person, we would have the information he would need to go to court. He eventually agreed to do that. We did, I think, five in total. So we've collected a sample. How are you gonna collect the sample? Any thoughts? Scotch tape? No, we're not gonna use Scotch tape. How else? A sterile swab. And you're gonna wet it first or are you just gonna be let it dry? Are you gonna wet the swab first? No? Yeah, you are. Uh, <laughs> You're going to take a little drop of water, and you're not going to use an excess of water, so you're going to put a drop of water on a Q-tip. It will work, because you can buy Q-tips in sterile packages. And you can just put a drop of distilled water, or water, and shake off the excess. And then you're going to very carefully swab a region of that stain. And you want to keep all of the blood as concentrated in one place on that swab as possible. You package it up. It's going to dry. And then that goes to the crime laboratory for analysis, all right, for the DNA laboratory. All right, so now we've finished photographing the outside. We have the outside. We've addressed the issue of the window, right? What have we done? We've done some footprints in the window. What else do we have to do at the window? Yeah, we're checking the bullet hole. What's your name? Kendall, Kendall wants us to check the bullet hole. What are we gonna look at the bullet hole for? see which direction it's going. We can do that, but not real accurately unless we have a second point of contact. Yes, in your name? Alex, Alex. says size and caliber. We can't tell that necessarily from the, from the hole. We can measure the width of the hole and get an approximation. What else might we be finding out there? There will be shards of glass. When a bullet goes through, it will bring glass in so you can tell the direction. The glass will also come back. Very, very fine shards. They might be on the shooter depending how far away the shooter was. What else are we doing? Yes? But we're still outside the house. We're not inside. We haven't, we haven't really addressed the inside yet. Yes. Powder residue. If the person was close enough, there might be powder residue on the window. If not, we won't see anything. What else? What are you missing? Yes. Okay, we're getting close. We're warming up now. Maybe maybe touch the window. Maybe looked in like this. Oftentimes when people look in windows, they put their forehead on the window. And it turns out the forehead's a great source of DNA. So you won't, you won't be able to identify them. From the print of their forehead, but you'll be able to identify the DNA from the cells that are on the window. But we're still, yes, shell casings. And if there is a shell casing, what does that automatically tell you? Well, it was outside, and what about what about the kind of gun? Semi-automatic, because it ejected it. If it's a revolver, like a Smith and Wesson 38 police special has five shots in a cylinder, shell casing doesn't come out. So if you don't find a shell casing, if the guy was smart enough, he picked it up and left, if he was using a semi-automatic, or he was using a revolver. So now you know something more about what was going on. And all you've done so far is observe, take pictures, and maybe do a casting and collect some blood. So we have some information, don't we? Let's go inside the house now. What's going on inside the house? We have a body, we have blood, but the first thing we wanna do is we wanna photograph this because we're still, we're still what we call in a visual mode. We're not really collecting evidence yet. We're looking for fragile evidence, which could be footprints, and where might we see footprints in the house? Tile foyer. How are you going to look for footprints there? You walk into a house, you're a crime scene investigator. The handiest tool you have is your flashlight. So you've got your flashlight, and the very first thing you do is look for footprints. How do you do that? Yeah? Nope. We don't dust for them yet. Maybe later. What else? What are we doing? Yeah. Exactly. Oblique lighting. You get down with your flashlight, and you shine it like this. And you should be able to pick up the footprints, and I can see footprints all through here. If you look carefully enough. So, we're looking for footprints. If we see them, what do we do? Well, we mark them. Taking pictures, absolutely. We have to do that. What we're doing is we're just making sure that our crime scene team doesn't destroy fragile evidence. But we still have to document this scene first before we begin collecting anything and we do that with photography. First thing we're going to do is we're going to be taking overview shots, which what we call establishing shots, of this scene. Now, let's say that we want to get a picture of this area. Where would you stand to take that picture? We're looking for this area. Where do you stand to get that photo? Nope. <laughs> Hang from the ceiling. Uh, where do you stand in the room? You're Standing up here. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get an overview of everything that's here, not just the body, not just the blood stains, but you want the relationship of everything that's in that room captured photographically. So you're going to be doing photographs from here, from over here, from over here, from over here, maybe from here, maybe from here, maybe from here, maybe from from back in here. You want to capture every side of every piece of furniture, except ones that are against the wall, and while you're doing that you will be capturing the relative location of evidence that's there. You've marked the location of some fragile footprints so that you don't kick them around or you don't ruin them when you walk through them when you're taking your photographs. But this is the first step. We're capturing, we're preserving that scene now for historical purposes. If if somebody's arrested for this and they go to trial, and maybe they're convicted, maybe they were wrongfully convicted, and maybe... At some time in the future, their appellate attorneys are able to wrangle a new trial. Well, somebody's going to come back and look at all of these photos. Yes. You're talking, you're talking chemistry. Chemistry is the last thing you can do at a crime scene. It may not be visible, and the one thing we don't have, tracks going all the way through here. We don't have any blood drop. One of the things that happens is when people bleed, they sometimes have a tendency to put their hand in their pocket, or they're covered up someplace once they realize it. He certainly had to touch the outside door, because we have blood on the, on the handle. We also don't know that this is his blood out here. We don't know that it's this guy's blood out there. Somebody's blood's there. All right, we still have to determine that. All right, so now we've done our establishing shots. What's next? What's next? What do you do next? What do you think you would do next, Aaron? Sure you do. More close-ups, we call them mid-range shots. So now you're gonna be doing mid-range shots of the window. All of the visible evidence, which we call the macro scene, visible evidence that's at that scene. And that all becomes captured photographically. The next thing we're gonna do is begin, we're gonna be testing this to make sure that it is blood, although it looks like it, smells like it, you won't taste it, but it's certainly gonna act like blood. And so we're gonna test it to make sure that it is blood. We also can test it to see if it's human blood. So that's all that can be done at the scene. That's as far as you can go, as far, you're not gonna do DNA testing at the scene, at least not with our technology that we have today. But we're going to get information about this. What's next? Now that we've done all the photography, except maybe some close-ups, what are we going to do next? We had some footprints, didn't we? We have to capture those photographically. These are what we call dust prints. There are two kinds of dust prints. One are called wet, and one are called dry. Wet is made when your feet are wet, and you come in, and the, the footprint eventually dries. And so you get some mud with that. And then you have dry, which is just dust. Just walking down that walkway is going to pick up dust on your shoes, and walking then into the into the ceramic tile foyer is going to leave footprints there. And ours should also continue on down here for for a short ways. So we're going to we've identified and we've located them because we've used the oblique lighting flashlight to help us. But we have to capture those. We have to preserve them and collect them so that we can put them in send them to a crime laboratory for analysis. How do you think we do that? Have you ever heard of electrostatic attraction? Have you guys had that in in your science classes? You know what happens when you rub your feet on the carpet floor and you touch something and you, you, you zap your fingers? That's an electrostatic charge. When I'm walking, if I walk from this door down this walkway and onto this carpet, I'm creating an electrostatic charge. And you should be able to pick that up. Certainly, the tracks that I leave coming down here are going to have dust on them. And so I can take a piece of foil that has a black uh, plastic surface and and a foil surface on the top of it, put it on top of that dust print, attach electrodes to it, and put it just with a battery. And Actually, it's very much like a stun gun. what it'll do is it'll create a charge on, on the uh, piece of pl- black plastic and will lift the footprint off the floor. I'll then have the footprint that I can then package and take to a crime laboratory. And that footprint will stay there for a very long time. Uh, you never package it in plastic because that'll decrease the electrostatic charge and you'll lose your footprint. So that's how we collect the footprint. That's one way to do it. Surprising detail can be captured that way. What if it's a wet footprint? What if it were already raining when the person came in the door and now there was a wet footprint and it won't be lifted by electrostatic charge because it's kind of plastered onto the floor? What do we do then? Yeah. Now we're down to your dusting. Absolutely right. I knew we were going to get there. Sure. Using fingerprint dust powder, a special kind called magnetic powder, you can dust that footprint. And Not only can you just dust it with black powder, you can dust it with fluorescent powder and you get a fluorescent footprint which gives you more sensitivity. So you've got your footprints and then you can lift that footprint with a piece of gelatin which is sticky on the bottom and you can just pull it right up and you'll get that on on a piece of uh, gelatin which is what you need to do to preserve it. Alright, so what are we going to do with this blood spatter we have here? By the way, we've probably been at this scene now for about seven hours. It's not the hour that you see on CSI. You've been here about seven hours to do this. You've collected some evidence. You've done some casting on the outside. We, did we do any fingerprinting on that window out there yet? We didn't do that, did we? So we have to go back and do that sometime. But we definitely have to do that. But let's take a look at this spatter pattern. How does that occur? Okay, so we, we have a spatter pattern here misty pattern suggesting that it was created by a high velocity impact projectile of some kind. A lot of people call this high velocity impact spatter or high velocity spatter. I don't like the terminology, but it conveys a message to people. It suggests that this is where, that a, that a bullet struck somebody that was bloody or cre- created a mist because the bullet hit. So now if this is the case, now we can get an approximate trajectory from this window and if it looks like the hole in that window is angled in this direction then we have a possible trajectory and a possible thought that this person was struck by that bullet which is why we're not finding it anywhere else in the room because we've checked the room to see if we if we have any other bullet holes. On the other hand if this looks like it came straight in here then we better start looking around here to see if we can find that bullet because maybe this guy was shot in the car and died as a result of that gunshot. Although the misty blood pattern suggests that that's not what happened. So, what do we know? We know probable direction of this. We can now take our lasers and we can do the bullet trajectory through here. Once we know the bullet trajectory, we can get an approximate position of that person where he was standing, based upon back laser projecting. So the, the laser is like this, this is, this is the laser, it's going into the house, I've got it set up on a tripod, and this is the approximate direction that the person was shot. Now I can back project, and I can get possible positions of that person. What am I looking for to indicate where he was standing? Footprints, sure. Cartridge cases. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do another one. Do we have some time to start on another one? We have five minutes. <laughs> Well, let's, let's take a look at one more real quick. This is a burglary. Here we have a broken window, blood on the, this is a bench top. We have blood on top of a bench top and some dusty or dirt prints coming in this direction. We have prints in the, in the, in the dirt going in this direction. We have a cut fence. We have tire tracks where it appears that the person backed out and then came through. We have underneath this counter here, which you you can't see, uh, is a button that opens this gate. The car that was stolen was a Mustang GT, a 500 horsepower, $179,000 racing car. Expensive car. We have an alligator, which is chasing a squirrel, so it's not State College. All right, so we have, some, we have some physical evidence. Where are you going to go to find, we already know how to do the scene, right? It's gonna be the same idea. We're gonna document it, we're gonna photograph it. Where's the most important evidence here? The what? Nope, not the tire tracks. Yes, the car, what car? That's gone, we can't find that car. Why? You're on your way too. All right, so he says that we have a button here that somebody had to touch in order to open the gate to get the car out the door. Because he's not going to let the $179,000 car ram through a gate, is he? That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Critical piece of evidence. Absolutely. What else is critical? We have a blood sample. Who said that? All right. We have a blood sample. What's your name? Donna. Donna says we have a blood sample. That's not going to help us today. It's going to help us when we eventually catch the person and compare the DNA. What else do we have here? Yes. We ha- what about the broken window? What can you tell from the broken window? Might see fingerprints on the window. Might see fingerprints on the windowsill. Where else? The thief was not familiar or was familiar. That's that's exactly right. So we're looking, maybe it's an inside job. Even if this garage is the place where you take your car to be repaired, you don't know where they keep their, their button to open up the gate necessarily, maybe you do. All right, but we're right now, we're at the window. What do we know about that window? Yeah, <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> Sit down, you're not on your way. All right. So we have fingerprints here, right? Possibly. Most important evidence we have, fingerprint on the button. We have footprints. We have fingerprints. We have blood. What else do we have? Debris on the inside. What else do we have? What about the, what's, what about the broken fence? Somebody had to cut through it. They had to use a tool. What are we going to do with the tool? We don't have a tool, but what do we do with the part of the fence that was cut? Well, yep, it's called tool mark examination. Sure, you, you're going to have tool marks where the, where the fence was cut. Where else? Okay, we know the direction that the Mustang was, was taken. Anything else that you can think of? You're missing something. Everybody's missing something. Yes. Okay, whoa, we have a two-man job. Why do you say? To get out or to come in? All right, so we have somebody who took the car. Two people came in through the broken window, right? One person stole the car and another person left through this way, right? Why did this person leave this way and not go out the door? Why? Security cameras. We have security cameras, don't we? They look at the outside, they look at the inside, outside, outside, door, driveway. What are they going to tell us? The cameras are covered. It's part of one, one of the things that the first officer made an observation. So who had to cover them? whoever did it. So that probably has a photo of them covering it. Maybe. Alright, so we've, we've done this pretty much. We have a pretty good idea where things are. We have a pretty good idea what, what the most important evidence is. You still have to go through the process of the photography, the sketching, and everything else we talked about for the first scene. So I'm opening it up to you guys now for questions. If you want to talk to me about anything, not anything that I've done in my life, but anything that uh, you think might be of interest to you. Yes. My show? You mean Crime Scene University? I don't know. Uh, They don't tell me anything. The course that I teach is called Crime Scene Investigation. And uh, we filmed a uh, six-part Discovery Channel program called Crime Scene University with 12 of our students. Well, not all of our students. We had three Penn State students, but the other students from different universities. We had a lot of fun with that. Yes. The question is, how long does it take to investigate a crime scene? I've been to a crime scene for three weeks. Every single day for three weeks, and I've been at a crime scene for four hours. Another question? Do I try No. Uh, I, I get so disgusted with the forensic science that I really don't watch those programs. Um, these crimes are made up. Um, the technology that you see on CSI is, for the most part, real technology. They, they go out of their way to find new technologies which are being used or which are possibly going to be used. Uh, but what they do with that technology is make it uh, do something that it's not supposed to do. We have, for example, uh, the capability of taking 3D ph- photographs of, of a crime scene. But what CSI did with that technology is have that go up on a computer and then do blood stain analysis on it as well, which it doesn't do. So they do use real technology, they don't always apply it correctly. Yes? I'm not sure I understand the question. How many crime scenes... You're asking how many crimes are committed. Every time there's a crime committed, there's a crime scene. Unless it's a... I guess that's probably true. I don't know how many crimes there are in State College that require a crime scene unit to go to. Uh, In New York City, we have about 1,800 sexual assault cases, six or 700 homicide cases, Thousands of burglary cases, so and each one of those require crime scene investigation. Donna? That's true. Um, the priorities, of course, are the mayor's daughter. Uh, death investigations, burglaries, sexual assaults, death investigations are, are high priorities. Burglaries are lower priorities, unless it's a serial burglar. Now, what's interesting is they're finding that uh, burglars are, are recidivists. In other words, about 50% of the people who commit burglaries can commit other burglaries. They're also learning that these people also commit more violent crimes. And so finding the people who do the burglaries prevents other kinds of crimes from being committed. So as far as resources are concerned, in New York City we had the NYPD Crime Scene Unit. That Crime Scene Unit investigated homicides. That's all the time they had. There's another group called the evidence collection teams and they would do burglaries, they would do sexual assaults. The medical examiner's office, I I had a team that I set up called, it was, the the names changed over the years, now it's called the Forensic Analysis and Reconstruction Unit. Our job was to, to go into the crime scene and look to see if we could reconstruct the events of that crime scene to help the medical examiner determine circumstances and manner of death. Yes. I don't know how many crimes in State College have not been solved. Yes. Detectives are an integral part of the investigation. The question was, how how often do we work with the detectives? The crime scene unit in New York City is a detective unit. They have detective titles. There is a detective in charge of the investigation, and the crime scene unit would work with the detectives, and so would the medical examiner. You you have to work as a team to get any of this done properly. Yes, ResTech, I don't even know what that is. Well, I don't buy any of my things from there. I usually buy equipment from... uh, Scientific supply houses, if it's a scientifically-based piece of equipment, or from forensic supply houses, there are, there, there are companies that specialize in selling forensic equipment to law enforcement. Yes? What is the worst part of forensic sciences? Bureaucracy? <laughs> Look, forensic science is a great profession. Where else can you use your brain, do something different every day, and have an impact on society? It's, it's a great profession. There are problems, just like there are with any job. You have to work with other people, and sometimes people are a pain in the butt. You have to work with people who are watching money all the time, and so you don't always have the resources to do the things you want to do. And then you have to go testify in court, and you testify in court to someone who's trying to impeach you or, or make you look like an idiot or that you don't know what you're doing. Uh, a defense attorney, in other words. Uh, but, you know, they have a job to do, too, and so they do the job to the best of their ability. But my, my premise is if you know your stuff, know your science, know exactly what you did, had kept all your notes and recorded everything you've done, they can't touch you. You'll be fine. So there's a whole lot of things which are great, and like any job, there are things which are not so great. Yes? <laughs> uh, no. Well, why wouldn't steam work on a fingerprint? What is a fingerprint comprised of? oils for the most part. So it's water. Steam is water. So it's not going to affect it. Now you say, okay, steam is hot. So that's going to cause the fingerprint maybe to melt. turns out that those oils don't melt so easily. And in fact, you can still get fingerprints in, out of a burning building that had been burning at hundreds of degrees. So the oils per se are not going anywhere. They're actually called wax esters. They're, they're, they're uh, waxes. Yes? Yes. The laboratory would have chromatographs uh, for doing drug analysis or some other things. Yes. The field of forensic science. Um, yeah, it goes back to uh, a guy named Bertillon. Bertillon was a French scientist who was the first person to apply science to the identification of individuals. And he, what he used was a, uh, an anthropologic method, of anatomical method of measuring He measured arms, legs, and things like that because his dad was an anthropologist. And so he transferred that information into an identification system, which had always been done by eyewitnesses before. Now he was able to take the measurements of a person, put it into a card catalog, and do this sort of thing. Then came fingerprints. Um, The other person who was really instrumental in this field as far from a scientific basis was Edmond Locard of the Locard Exchange Principle. He he too was a French scientist. Locard studied under Bertillon, and Locard studied under another f- well-known, what they called criminologist in those days, Lascagne. And these were the people, these, these were the foundation of the application of science to criminal investigations. And it just kind of morphed into a law enforcement thing that included more and more science. Now, the birth of, the, of forensic science in this country really came from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because they needed to identify the bullets, and that's when they set up the Chicago Crime Laboratory. Valentine's Day Massacre, I believe, was 1918. And this is where uh, uh, some gang members, the mafia, came in and shot up another group of gang members in a garage. And there was like uh, lots of bullets that needed to be tracked and things. Yes. Yeah, a number of areas of forensic science are coming under fire. These areas of, and I'll get to you directly to your question. Uh, These areas have to do with what they call experience-based testing. A lot of this testing is done by police officers who are applying forensic science to the comparison of things like footprints, fingerprints. uh, Bite marks fall into this category with forensic odontologists. Uh, I was on a committee that just recently set on a report, National Academy of Sciences Committee, on considering the future of forensic science It's called a path forward. And what we did is we criticized those areas of forensic science uh, because, well, let me give you an example. I, am, I compare footprints, and I take my footprint of, of, from the crime scene, and I take the footprint from a known person. And I do comparisons. And what I'm looking for not only is the, what the shape of the sole is, which we call a class characteristic, because that's what's manufactured. I'm also looking for all those little accidental and incidental scratches and scrapes and inclusions on the bottom of that sole which have traditionally by forensic scientists, or or forensic science, been considered unique. So we call them unique characteristics, or individualizing characteristics. Well, the problem is, it's not that you can't do the comparison. The problem is, is what's the rarity of that comparison? How do you know? Is that one in a million? Is it one in ten? People who have been testifying to this for decades, or a century, simply say that they're unique. They came from that shoe, but there's no underlying databases or science to prove that. So this is what's coming under fire. The same is true with fingerprints. Nobody really doubts that fingerprints are unique. But what happens when you, when you take a partial print from a crime scene and match it up to a print on a, on a fingerprint card taken at a police station, there's a world of difference. This fingerprint from the crime scene can have all sorts of non-clarity to it. And so it's not going to be a complete footprint, I mean fingerprint, it's going to be a partial fingerprint. So, how do you determine statistics from that? Uh, nobody has ever done it. And in fact, the fingerprint community has said, we don't want to do that. We believe that they're unique. And so this becomes a problem in the courts. The courts say, well, tell me, is that really unique or not? Give me a statistic. And there are no statistics available for that. Sure. Uh, World of difference between becoming a crime scene investigator and a forensic scientist. Forensic scientist, if you're going to go through our program, you need to be steeped in your chemistry and your biology and your physics and your calculus. And then you have to learn how to do forensic science, forensic chemistry, forensic biology, uh, criminalistics, as well as understand crime scene investigation. Crime scene, if you're going to be a crime scene investigator, you simply have to become a police officer for the most part. You do not necessarily need a college degree although most, a lot of police, officers, police academies these do require college degree, you do not have to be a scientist, and you have usually on-the-job training. Yes. What happens if a fingerprint smears? Well, it doesn't have any va- when a fingerprint smears, we call it a smudged print, it doesn't have any value for identifying anybody, but there is DNA there. And so there is the possibility of getting DNA out of a fingerprint, which can then be used to identify somebody. The question is, if I were a crime scene investigator, would I also be a detective? No. Uh, what you see on CSI is the person who's doing the investigation, doing the science, doing the talking to witnesses, and doing the arrest. That person does not exist in this world. That's a fallacy. Of, that's a CSI fallacy. What it, it requires a number of people, each of who does each of those things. Can you join me in thanking Dr. Shaler for a wonderful program today? And thank you.
0: We have a we have a little research unplugged oh mug for you. And thanks again to the kids for coming out today and helping make our,
1: our event so uh, so terrific.